Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew and remind ourselves that Gospel means good news and Matthew means gift of God. When we were studying John's Gospel, it was kind of neat to, to think about the fact that John's name means God is gracious. And, and so the Gospel of John is the good news that God is gracious. When we got into Matthew's Gospel, we talked about his name meaning the gift of God. This is the good news of the gift of God. And boy, it is some good news tonight. What I would like to do is um, do a quick review of the last few chapters because uh, we had one week off and we had uh, some time where a few of us couldn't make it. And so I just want to go all the way back to chapter 22 and 23 and I'm just going to give you a quick review of the chapters. So you just go back to chapter 22 and, and kind of review this with me, okay? Chapter 22, the first 14 verses, we had uh, the parable of the wedding banquet. And this par- parable portrayed how the king and the kingdom were offered to the nation, okay? Verses 1, or, one and 2 there. But they were refused in verse 3. And then the wedding clothes there in, in uh, verses 11 through 14 are really the, the, the righteousness of Christ. It's really a, a, a portrait of putting on Christ. Now, um, verses 15 through 46 in, chapters, in chapter 22, the nation shows its rejection, its further rejection of the king and the kingdom. So, you can kind of see this building up here. The Herodians were, were Jews um, in external or religious forms. We talked about that. And the Sadducees, uh, verses 23 through 33, were the religious um, rationalists, you might say. Jesus confounded the Pharisees by asking them about Psalm 110.1, which refers to his own uh, divinity and his humanness. See, that's something that a lot of people stumble on. They stumble at the fact that Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. And that's a tough one. No, we can't forget that. If we forget that as believers, then the questions that come at us, are they're really hard to deal with when you forget that he was fully God and he was fully man. He was that daysman that Job speaks about. Remember, he cried out for a daysman or a an arbitrator, somebody that could put his hand both on God and him. Well, he was literally crying out for the Messiah. Okay, Chapter 23, verses 1 through 39, we look at the doom pronounced and the lament made over Jerusalem. Chapters 24 and 25, now I'm just going to hit these, I'm just going to brush on these so you kind of get the whole picture as we get back into chapter 26 tonight. In chapter 24, first of all, 24 and 25, those two chapters are the rejected king's Mount of Olives discourse, okay? Or we call that the the Olivet discourse. That's Jesus teaching from the Mount of Olives. And remember now, he's teaching his disciples. This was uh, Peter, James, John, and Andrew on the Mount of Olives asking him some questions. So now chapter 24 opens up, verses 1 through 3. It's a prophecy of the destruction of the temple. Uh, The rejected king, as a prophet, predicted the future events when he would resume dealing with Israel. Okay, Um, We pick up on that in in, uh, chapter 23, verse 39. Let's just take a a close-up look at that chapter 23 and verse 39 where Jesus says, For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The indication is it's going to get so bad for the nation of Israel that last seven years is called the time of Jacob's trouble and it's going to get so bad for Israel that they're going to cry out for the return of the Messiah. They're going to cry out for him. They're literally going to petition him to return. And uh, so... Here you have the um, just before his return to earth in his glory, Jesus prophesies these future events. Then, 
Verses 4 through 26 in chapter 24 are the events of the tribulation. Okay? And as we went through that study, we related the events of the tribulation to Daniel chapter 9, verse 27, uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Revelation chapter 13, a lot of the things that are going to take place during the tribulation. But the main point I wanted you to leave here with as we studied Matthew chapter 24 and 25 is that they're very Jewish. Don't try to read the church into these times, okay? The church is, is gone. Um, by the time you hit verse 15 in Matthew chapter 24, you already have the abomination of desolation set up in the temple. That's halfway through the tribulation, okay? So then we have um, from, let's see, chapter 24, verses 27 through 30, you have the second coming of the Messiah. This follows immediately after the tribulation. Then you have uh, verses 32 through, uh, I'm sorry, verse 31 is really the regathering of Israel. Chapter 24, verses 32 through 36 is the certainty of the Messiah's coming. You can take that to the bank, you guys. Messiah is coming. I, I love the fact that there's been, there were over 300 prophecies fulfilled in the Messiah's first coming. Over 300. That's incredible. Last night we were, we were in a study with uh, Chuck Missler, and, uh, and he pointed out that to fulfill just eight of the prophecies, eight out of the 300 prophecies, he started running the numbers, what the odds would be. And, and, and what was it, John? It was like one to the 17th, or 10 to the 17th power. 1 in 10 to the 17th power. Here's how he described it. He said, if you took uh, uh, silver dollars and, and, you, and you put them across the state of Texas two feet deep, and one of them, one of them was marked somehow. Mark it real well, put it two feet deep, silver dollars across the state of Texas. And then you blindfolded somebody and sent them in there and said, pick one. The chances of that guy picking the one that you marked is the odds of Jesus fulfilling just eight of these 300 prophecies. I mean, so think about it. He is who he says he is, and he will return. Fulfilled 300 prophecies to come the first time. Um, so the certainty of the Messiah is coming. Then verses 36 through 51 in Matthew 24, you have some exhortations to watchfulness. Watchfulness. But remember... He's speaking to the nation of Israel to watch, okay? All three illustrations emphasize the unexpectedness of the Lord's coming. Then we got into chapter 25. And verses 1 through 30 really um, cover the judgment of Israel. The judgment of Israel. First 13 verses represent Israel at the end of the tribulation. Those without oil, that was a symbol of, of the Holy Spirit being without the Holy Spirit. In fact, I want to touch on that a, a bit. Can you find the book of Zechariah? It's the second to last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah has a vision in uh, chapter 4 of the book of Zechariah. And I just want to touch on that because all through the, all through the Bible, oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And look at this vision that he has. Chapter 4, Zechariah, verse 1. Then the angel who talked with me returned and awakened me, as a man is awakened from his sleep. And he asked me, What do you see? I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top and seven lights on it. So it's kind of the picture of the menorah, isn't it? It looks like a, like a menorah. He says, that here's, I, I see this solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top, seven lights on it, with seven channels to the lights. Also, there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I asked the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? And he answered, do you not know what these are? No, my Lord, I replied. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, 
but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. I find it interesting that these, these lamps are being fed by these olive trees directly. Now, some people think that being filled with the Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit is a one-shot deal. Who? I was filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. I got news for you. That's not a one-shot deal. We need to be hooked up. That water, that living water needs to be flowing. As soon as it backs up and it's not being fed through there, um, you wind up like the Dead Sea in Israel. Isn't it interesting that just north of the Dead Sea, you have the Sea of Galilee, which has inlets and outlets, and as a result, the water's moving and it's fresh and it's clean. Just south of that, you got the Dead Sea, and it's stagnant and it's lifeless. It's cool that the, that the prophets prophesy that that's going to come back to life when the Lord returns and he sets up his kingdom here on earth. That's going to be a sight, huh? So, the... Um, the first 13 verses there are the Israel at the end of the tribulation, those without oil, symbol of, the, of those without the Holy Spirit. Um, th- those without the Holy Spirit will be shut out of the Messianic kingdom. It's clear in that, in that parable there. Then uh, verses 14 through 30, the parable of the talents. The man going on a journey represents Christ during his absent, absence from the earth. Verse, uh, verses 31 through 46, the judgments of the nation. I think there might have been a little confusion on that last week, but this is, this is what Israel thought Messiah would do at his first coming. That's why there was so much confusion. Israel thought that when the Messiah comes, he's going to set up his kingdom. And so when he was crucified, they all said, oh, here we thought he was the Messiah. What, he was, what he's going to accomplish is he's going to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, but that's at his second coming, okay? And then we did get into Matthew 26 a little bit. We got the, the first uh, 16 verses there, and we looked at Jesus' anointing for his death. Mary of Bethany alone seemed to, to have understood the meaning of the king's death, right? So my prayer tonight, as we get into uh, chapter 26 now, deeper into chapter 26 is that the Lord would just open our our hearts our understanding our minds and fill us with his spirit and help us understand what we read tonight okay so here we are at um, verse 17 verse 17 in Matthew chapter 26 on the first day of the feast of unleavened bread the disciples came to Jesus and asked where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, the Passover celebration was, of course, and this is on that handout that I gave you. You can this is this is from Ravel Bible Dictionary, and if you take this and read through it, you might have to read through it a few times. But if you do that, you'll have a clear understanding of what the Passover is and what the celebration is. First of all, up on top there. I'm not going to read through this whole thing just for time's sake, but you take this, take this with you and look at it. It has three definitions there of Passover. The first one is the historic meal shared by Hebrew families on the night God passed over the Jewish community but struck the firstborn of Egypt dead. You find that in chapters 12 and 13 of Exodus. And, and that was part of what uh, Michael shared uh, two Sundays ago. And then uh, the second definition there is an annual commemorative meal shared by Jewish families which recreates the meal eaten by the Jews in Egypt on the original Passover. And you find that specifically in Exodus 12, 24 through 30. Now that's what Jesus wants to celebrate with his disciples. He wants to go through that meal and, and it's actually a kind of a reenactment almost. Except this time around we're looking at the Passover lamb. Remember how John describes Jesus? Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And then thirdly, the seven-day annual festival celebrated by public sacrifices and private sharing in the Passover meal continued for a week by eating only unleavened bread and concluded with another day of sacrifices and celebration. And that's what he's talking about, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's what that was. And it's a big deal. It still is a big deal in Israel. It's one of the one of their main feasts. 
And here on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples come to Jesus and say, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Now, it's probably good that they didn't know. And, and sometimes I think the Lord still keeps us in the dark about certain things because, look, here we are, you know, 2,000 years later, and the enemy is still confused as to what the church is all about and how it works, you know. He's still, you know, he's still confused. Well, here, as we get into this story, you're going to see there's an advantage to just a few of them knowing and making the preparation. Okay, first of all, Judas doesn't know. He's the one that's going to betray Jesus. But here's his reply, verse 18. He replied, go into the city uh, to a certain man. That would be like you and I saying uh, to so-and-so um, and and Matthew here kind of takes some shortcuts. If you get into Mark's gospel, it's a little more detailed. Luke's gospel is a little more detailed. But he says, go to this certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. Now, in Mark's gospel, we're not going to turn there, but if you want to make a note of these, it's, it's kind of good to, to look at the other go- synoptic gospels where these stories are or these accounts are, are written down. Mark 14 and Luke 22. In Mark 14, it says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. That's one of the details we don't have in Matthew's Gospel. It was customary to sacrifice the lamb. Jesus sent two of his disciples. Well, Matthew doesn't give us that detail. It just says... Um, he, he replied, go into the city. But he says he sent two. And it's kind of interesting because in Luke's gospel, he names them. It was Peter and John. He sent Peter and John. So he sends these two disciples. He says, there's going to be a man carrying a jar of water and he'll meet you. He says that in Mark's gospel, chapter 14. He says, follow him and then say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, so on and so forth. And he'll show you an upper room furnished and ready. So those are some details we don't have in Matthew's gospel, but Mark gives them to us. Also, um, in Luke's gospel, he says, he'll show you a large upper room, all furnished. So it's go- something's going on here. Now, some say that Jesus went and prepared this all ahead of time. Others say that this was miraculous, that the Lord just said, just go do this. Now, you decide. I don't think it's out of the realm of, of the Lord's character to do either, you know. We don't really know. The Bible doesn't really tell us. But then it says, um, when the disciples went, that the disciples found things just as Jesus had told them. Look at it. It's here in, in Matthew's Gospel 2, verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. And when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. Now that might sound kind of weird to you and I. What's he doing reclining at the table? But try to picture in your mind, if you can, um, I probably should have had something to draw it on, but um, the Romans had a, a, a table that was called a, a triclinium. Triclinium. It looks kind of like a horseshoe. Okay, it was a table that had probably had square corners on it, but it was kind of shaped like a like a horseshoe. And the reason why it was shaped like that was so that the servants could come right up in the middle of the table and remove the plates and the, and serve food and and. What these guys did is they would recline, they would lean on their left elbow and toward this low table, and they would be on mats or, or, or cots or carpets. In fact, triclinium, uh, the word actually comes from couch, or couch, and, and clinium is to recline. You know? so, so they would actually lean on one elbow and eat with their right hand. Now, it'd be real convenient for you to talk to the person that was right in front of you because you're leaning on your elbow, he's leaning on his elbow, and you can talk right to him. But for the person behind you, you would have to lean back and kind of turn back to talk to him. And that's why the Bible refers to John as leaning on Jesus' breast at supper. Well, now you get the picture. They weren't sitting on chairs and at a tall table. They were at a triclinium, and they, he would lean back. And... and um, so some of the things that you see in this gospel are going to make sense if you just get that picture, okay? Get that picture of the, the triclinium. So now it says, When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve, and while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, 
one of you will betray me. Now imagine how that must have reverberated through that upper room. Betray you? What, what, what's that supposed to mean? Jesus has been telling these guys all along that he's going to have to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He's going to be mocked and spit on and beat. He's going to be crucified and then he's going to rise from the dead. But he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they were very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And this is kind of a, a, a cool picture because it gives you an indication even of where these guys were sitting at the triclinium. You know, the guest of honor was generally uh, the second one from the end. So you have, here's John, here's Jesus. And of course, we know because he's sitting next to Judas. So Judas is the next one. You come all the way around the table. When you get to the other side of the table, they figure this is where Peter's sitting because remember, he kind of shoots a little verbal over to John. Hey, psst, ask him who it is, you know. So it gives you a little bit of indication of even the, the, the seating arrangement there. But they were very sad. They began to say, is it I? Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. And by the way, that comment about it would be better for him if he wasn't born, that comment is true of anyone who rejects Jesus as Savior and Lord. Anyone who has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, it would be better for them. They were never born. And it's interesting that the rabbis, even today, teach annihilation, much like the Jehovah Witnesses. They believe that you just you go into hell and you burn up and you cease to be. You are no more. You know, that's kind of the way they feel. But that's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. Even in that uh, in, in that story in, in Luke 16 where Jesus talks about the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man was very conscious, very conscious of the flames, very conscious of the torment. You know, we need to understand that. It's not, it, we're not talking about annihilation. It would be better if he'd never been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. Jesus answered, yes, it is you. Pretty clear. Now, in, um, in John chapter 6, I'm just going to jump over there for a second. In John chapter 6 and verse 70, John chapter 6 and verse 70. It says, Then Jesus replied, Have I not chosen you, the twelve, yet one of you is a devil? <laughs> That's pretty interesting. Jesus knew the betrayer when he chose him. He knew who he was when he chose him. How many of us would have chosen Judas to be one of the twelve if we knew from the get-go that he was going to be the guy to betray us. That's how much confidence Jesus had in the will of the Father. We sang that song tonight. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on the earth as it is up above. May your will be done. Jesus had so much confidence in the Father that he was willing to even receive as one of the twelve, as one of his closest friends, one who was going to betray him. Jesus knew right from the beginning. So he says, yes, it is you. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Now that's interesting to me that Jesus, knowing what lied ahead, gave thanks for the breaking of this bread. He gave thanks and he broke this bread. He knows what's going to happen. He's been talking about this for, you know, every time he had an opportunity to reveal it to the disciples, verbally he would remind them of where he's heading. And then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant. 
In the King James, some other translations, in fact, in the NIV, even in Luke's Gospel, it says the New Covenant. This is the New Covenant in my blood. This is not the Old Law Covenant. This is the cup of the New Covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And again, Michael pointed out at that Passover presentation that this was the third cup of the four cups. The third cup is known as the cup of redemption. I think that's pretty neat. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Ever wonder what Jesus' voice sounded like? You want to sing next to Jesus? <laughs> they sang a hymn. I wonder what hymn they sang. There are some psalms that are traditional in uh, Jewish circles for Passover. Psalm, one, psalm 115 through 118 are known as the, the Hallel Psalms. And, and some think that it was one of those psalms that they sang. We don't know for sure. Um, that's one of the exciting things. As a musician, I want to find out. I also want to hear all the melodies to the psalms. We have the words, but we don't have the music. I want to hear what David was doing. Um, somebody asked me one time who my favorite artist was, you know, my favorite musician, and I said, I think it's David, but I haven't heard the tunes yet. You know, I got his lyrics, but I've never heard the tunes. But um, then... Jesus told them, this very night you will all fall away on account of me. Now, let me ask you a question. You've heard me ask this question before. How many is all? It's all, right? You're all going to fall away. Now, if Jesus says you're all going to fall away, it's a pretty good indication that you're all going to fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. That's also from Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Now, he's giving them instructions here. Again, he talks about his death, but he always talks about his resurrection with his death. I think he, he may be trying to cushion the blow here a little bit for these guys. But he's, how many times has he told them this now? He tells them, I, you know, I'm, you're going to be scattered on account of me, but after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replies, Amazing. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Interesting, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. Just make a note of that. We don't have time to turn there, but just look at how Jesus so gently restores Peter. In fact, the question, the first question he asks him is, Peter, do you love me more than these? And I don't know if he meant these other disciples or because they were fishing, remember? They were fishing and that was kind of after, after Jesus died and um, Peter says, I'm going fishing. You ever get the urge to go back to what you used to do? Peter says, I'm going fishing. They said, well, we'll go with you. And, and Jesus, you know, when they finally recognize it's Jesus up on the shore, he's cooking bre breakfast for them and they come up to the shore with this catch of fish and, and, and here... Jesus has breakfast for him, and he says, Peter, after they're done eating breakfast, he says, Peter, do you love me more than these? Now, I don't know if he meant than these fish or than these other disciples or do you, do you love me more than these exploits? I mean, you love me more than fishing, Peter? I don't know what it, you know, because the Bible doesn't really say, but, but he restores him, and, and three times he asks him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And so gently he restores Peter, and I think that has something to do with the three times Peter denied him. Because here he's saying, basically, and not in so many words, but he's, he's saying, even though all these other guys fall away, Lord, I'm not going to fall away. I'm the one that's going to stick right by you. Even though they all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And I don't know if you've ever seen the rest of that verse, but the Bible says, and all the other disciples said the same. We tend to skip over that one. Peter gets the rap for saying, oh, I'll never do it. But all of, they all said it. They all said the same thing. Even though they all, you know, all these other guys... And so when it comes to promising, and I've learned in my Christian walk, 
I just don't make promises to the Lord anymore. You know, it's more like, Lord, if there's a way to fall away, you know I will. So please, you know, just grab me by the collar, <laughs> you know, and don't let me go. Because if there's any way to figure out how to walk away, I will. You know, I've I, I figured myself out. But Peter gets the pride rap here, but notice that they all said, and all the other disciples said the same thing. But Jesus tells them, you're going to fall away. Then, then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And one of the interesting points about, even about that name, Gethsemane, it means olive press. It means olive press. Now think about this. Jesus about, is, is about to have the life squeezed out of him. I mean, when you read the other accounts, the other synoptic gospels about this, Luke, the doctor, points out that Jesus was under so much stress that he was sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. I mean, actually, vessels uh, were, were rupturing in his, in his, uh, under his skin, and he was sweating drops of blood. No, it was cool. It was cool outside. It wasn't, he wasn't sweating because it was hot out. You know, it was cool outside. But Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. Remember, that's olive press. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And um, I don't remember which of the other synoptic gospels, but one says it was about a stone's throw that he went further as the Peter, James, and John um, hit the deck there. And, and, uh, and so he, 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 he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, which are James and John, along with them, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is over. I want you guys to be with me. Do you think that Jesus knew that they were going to fall asleep on him? Yeah, I do too. I do too. I, I, I think Jesus knew that. I think Jesus did this as an example to you and I. If you're going through something, here's what the enemy wants you to do. Oh, don't. Don't tell anybody about that. Why would you share that with somebody? You're going through, just don't, just go through it alone. That's what the enemy wants. Jesus took his three best friends with him and said, will you pray with me? Even though he knew they were going to fall asleep on him, I think he did it for our benefit. And, and so going a little farther, after he tells them to watch with him, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, and take note of that question, if it is possible, may this cup, be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Now, what's the cup? What cup is he talking about? Well, if you remember back in, we don't have time to turn there tonight, but if you remember back in Matthew chapter 20, and in verse 20, there was a mother who came to Jesus with a request, and it was this. Jesus, could one of my sons sit on your right hand and one on your left when you enter your kingdom? And the question that Jesus asked was, can they drink of the cup that I'm about to drink of? You know, that's, that's pretty heavy. And can they drink of the cup? It was talking about the fate that lied ahead for Jesus. And remember, when Jesus went to Calvary, he took on the sins of the entire world. This, is, this cup that he's talking about is the wrath of God. This, is the, this cup that he's talking about, it's the cup of God's wrath and its full strength. Um, I do want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 14, because I want to show you that cup of wrath, just a little bit of it. Chapter 14 in Revelation. I want to read verses 6 through 13, just to give you a picture of the wrath of God. If, if you want to get the whole picture, you need to read chapters 6 through 18 in Revelation, but this will give you an idea. Chapter 14, Revelation, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and the springs of water. A second angel, this is verse 8, a second angel followed and said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. Verse 9, A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, 
he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. And then I heard a voice from heaven say, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor for their deeds will follow them. No. Remember, these are the tribulation saints. This is not the church. Okay, I wanted you to get a picture, though, of the wrath of God and what it means. Now, when Jesus went to Calvary, this is the cup. This is the cup. The cup of God's wrath is poured out full strength on Jesus on the cross. Now you're going to have a picture of, of why he experienced what he experienced. So he says, Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And then he returned to his disciples. And he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me one hour? He asked Peter. Why do you suppose he asked Peter? There were three guys there. Well, because Peter was the one that says, Oh, you know what, though? Everybody else fails you. I won't fail you. Hey, Peter. Hey, psst. Wake up, Pete. You know, I see that and, I, it, and in my own heart I go, That's me, Lord. That's me. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Now, I really believe that that's a true truth. Because so many things that we want to do... Uh, read read uh, Romans chapter 7 sometime. Look at how Paul struggled with that. And how he said, you know, the things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I do want to do, and I know I should do, I don't. And... You know, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from... You know, and, and same thing here. I mean, the, the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he went away a second time. So here we have round two. All right, round one, he asked the Father if it's possible. Round two, he went away a second time and he prayed, My Father, if it's not possible... Now see how the prayer changed a little bit? First time he said, if it's possible. Now he says, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, May your will be done. Boy, I want to have that kind of confidence in the Father and His will in my life. When everything starts going wrong and I start thinking, God, where are you? And how come you're not listening to me? And how come you're not answering my prayers? And I start raking God over the coals, you know. Where are you, Lord? No, Jesus says, if this is your will, Father, so be it. So be it. And when he came back again, he found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and he went once more and he prayed a third time saying the same thing. Round three, same thing. Father, if it's not possible for this cup to pass by me, then your will, not my will. Now, there are some teachers today who will tell you, don't ever pray that prayer. Don't ever pray, Father, if it's not your will. Because that's weakness. That's a lack of faith. And there are some people that will say, you know, you pray and you ask the Lord once to go back and ask Him again is a lack of faith. Well, something's going on here then because Jesus didn't really understand prayer. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think those teachings are wacky. I think those teachings are extremely wacky. And I learned after, I mean, I'm learning. Listen to me. I learned. I'm learning that prayer is not about getting my way. Prayer is about God enlisting me in His will. God wants to get my life in line with His will. He doesn't want me to try to, to get His arm up behind His back. And to, you know, Some people, I mean, they look at fasting and stuff like that. Well, if I fast and pray, maybe if I fast and pray. And they look at fasting as like a little kid holding his breath or something. Well, I'll fix you, Mom and Dad. I'm just hold my breath. Well, okay. After you change about four or five different shades, you'll breathe again. And sometimes the Lord's got to tell me that. You know, here's a paper bag. <laughs> you know, breathe in here. Hyperventilate if you must, but get over it. 
Prayer is not to get my will. And you don't find that in the scriptures. You don't find that teaching. The teaching is, I want God's will. I want to know God's will. By the way, the reason I want to know God's will is because he has foreknowledge. He knows everything else that comes into play here. He's looking at this mess that I'm in from eternity's perspective, not from the moment. I'm looking at the moment going, get me out of here. And God's going, no, wait a minute. The process isn't over. Now, when he comes back, he finds them sleeping because their eyes were heavy, so he left them, went away once more, prayed the third time, saying the same thing, and then he returned to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour is near, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Now, I want you to make a note somewhere, either in your notebook or in the margin of your Bible, and I want you to note that this prayer that Jesus just prayed here, this Gethsemane prayer, actually follows the prayer of John chapter 17. And John chapter 17 is what I call the Lord's Prayer. Some people look at Matthew 6 and they call that the Lord's Prayer. You know, um, uh, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. They call that the Lord's Prayer. But I don't believe that's the Lord's Prayer. I, I, I believe that's a model that God gave us to learn how to pray. But Jesus couldn't pray that prayer because he's praying for forgiveness of sin and all those things that he never did. He, he, he couldn't. That wasn't the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is John 17. And in John chapter 17, he prays for you and I. I want to see if, if you can find that this week. Look in John chapter 17 sometime this week and find where Jesus prayed for you. And he prayed for me. It's fantastic. It's fantastic. When he went to the cross, he was thinking about you. And he was thinking about me. And while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him was a large crowd armed with swords and clubs. Can you picture this? A large crowd with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Now, there must be a reason for that. Why didn't he just say, um, it's the guy with the halo? Grab the guy that's glowing in the dark, you know. Or grab the guy that's levitating, you know. Jesus was fully man. He didn't have some kind of, you know, some aura about him where everybody went, ooh, you know, there's the Son of God. No, Judas had to go up and identify him by giving him a kiss. That's neat. I mean, to me, that, that's cool. You know, There wasn't anything else that drew people to Jesus, nothing about his physical appearance that made him you know, more charming or more handsome or uh, more charismatic or however you want to look at that. It was, Judas had to, had to show these guys who he was by kissing them. Man, they arranged a signal. When I kiss is the man, arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Now, it's interesting to me. I just realized this in my study recently, uh, thanks to a, a pastor friend of mine. I, I didn't come up with this on my own. But he pointed out that Judas, nowhere in the Scriptures, calls Jesus Lord. He always calls him Master or Rabbi. He never called him Lord. That's interesting. There's no place in the scripture recorded where, where he calls him, where he says, Lord. That's interesting. So, he says, Greetings, Rabbi, which means teacher. And he kissed him. Jesus replied, Friend, do what you came for. And then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled? that it must happen in this way. 
You see, that's Jesus' desire. Didn't he say, everything that was written about me in the law and the prophets has to be fulfilled and the Psalms has to be fulfilled? And I want you to turn back. At this point, I want to show you a few scriptures. Turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. I've got to show you because... Because Jesus so many times told these guys how it was going to come down. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21 says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. Okay, where are they? They're in Jerusalem, aren't they? All right. And suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Okay, you're going to see all three of those groups present here. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now before you turn the page, just look across the page there at chapter 17 and verse 9. Chapter 17, verse 9. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus instructed them, and of course this is right after the transfiguration, he instructed them, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. So there's another indication that he's telling them, I'm going to have to die and come back to life again. Okay. Now on that same page, verse 22, when they came together in Galilee, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. Now take a look at chapter 20 in Matthew. Got one more before we go back to where we were just reading. I want you to read verse 18 and actually 17 through 19. Chapter 20 in Matthew, 17 through 19. Now, as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside and said to them, now this is a briefing. He pulls them aside and he says to them, We are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will turn him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day he will be raised to life. Now, <laughs> by this time you're going, well, all right, now, come on, you guys. You know, what's up? What's up? Okay, so here we are in Matthew chapter 26. <clears throat> as Jesus is being arrested here, and he tells them, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? And of course, he's talking about Isaiah 52, Isaiah 50, Isaiah 53, uh, Psalm 22. He knows how this is unfolding. He knows what's in this cup that's going to be poured out on him, and he says it has to come down just the way it's written. Now at this time, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Well, wait a minute. They all deserted him and fled. Isn't that what he said back in verse 31? Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. I think when Jesus says something, we should probably just go, Okay. <laughs> okay. Lord, maybe you want to forgive me ahead of time. <laughs> you know, because if you say I'm going to fall away, I know I'm going instead to, of, instead of taking Peter's line, you know, well, Lord, not me. I mean, all these other people might. But you don't know how tenacious I can be. And the Lord said, no, all of you are going to fall away. And, and then it says, those who had, a, had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas. Now, remember, we talked a little bit last week about Caiaphas, how he was a, a Roman appointee. Uh, it calls him high priest here, but actually uh, Annas was high priest. This is the son-in-law of Annas. And I want to show you one comment before we move along because it'll tell you a little bit about Caiaphas's character. If you turn with me to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 48 through 53. Okay? In John chapter 11. This is kind of important because you'll see what we're dealing with here and, and why 
it's so critical that they respond the way they do. How about if we back up to verse 45? Let's read 45 through 53 in John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did put their faith in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. You get the sense of urgency here? Yeah? What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up, You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. So from that day on, make note of this, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Now this Caiaphas, I don't think he fully understood this. He wanted to save Israel from Rome, from the Romans. I don't think he understood what was going on. But you get a little picture of his character, and you get why these guys were so fearful of Jesus. They were afraid for their positions. They're going to lose their positions. And Rome's going to hear about this uproar, and we're going to be in bondage to Rome again. So back in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 57, those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas. And you'll understand that there's, uh, there's actually a, a, a path that this takes. It'll unfold for you as we go. The high priest were the teachers of the law, and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. As you look at uh, the Synoptic Gospels, when you look at all three of these Gospels put together, you'll see there's five stages of this mock trial that comes about. First of all, he goes to Annas, then he goes to Caiaphas, then he goes to Pilate, then he goes to Herod Antipas, then he goes back to Pilate. Okay? But also, some of the scholars and some of the people that I've, I've heard you know, talk about Peter and, and, and his denial, they talk about the different stages of Peter's denial. And it goes something like this. First of all, his overconfidence. Secondly, his sleeping instead of praying. Thirdly, his following afar off, which is what he's doing here. He's, he's, now he's following Jesus, but he's following him from a distance. Fourthly, warming himself by the enemy's fire, and then finally the denial. But that's the way it happens. That's the way it happens in our walks, too. You know, you get a little overconfidence. You start sleeping instead of praying. You follow Jesus from a distance instead of from close up. And then you start hanging out by the enemy's camp. And then you deny the Lord. Now, I want you to understand that that you know, Peter didn't become a Buddhist or something. You know, he still, he still loved Jesus. Okay? He fell. But I want you to know that it wasn't beyond repair. And notice the difference between what Peter does and how he responds and what Judas does and how he responds. Okay? Now, Peter followed at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and he sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. We just saw that in John's Gospel, but they didn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward. No, I'm thinking, wait a minute, doesn't the Bible somewhere tell us that we're not supposed to bear false witness? Isn't that like in the Ten Commandments? And like, you know, Exodus chapter 20, verse 16, don't bear false testimony? And yet here they're rounding these guys up. What, who can we get? Well, because this trial was illegal in so many different ways. First of all, there, there weren't supposed to be any night trials. Secondly, there, there weren't supposed to be death sentences passed during the feast. 
That was illegal. All this stuff was illegal, everything they're doing. There was not supposed to be any sentence that was given the same night. If somebody was found guilty, they were supposed to sleep on it or think about it for 24 hours before they sentenced the guy. You weren't supposed to convict him and sentence him the same night. Well, they forgot about that law as well. And you must have two witnesses that tell the same story, and the, and the witnesses have to be interrogated separately. You can't just have one guy come in and give a story, and then a guy come in right after him and give a story who just heard the story that the guy just gave. That's not a witness, is it? That's just somebody parroting what somebody else said. And, and they violated all of them to make this stick. Finally, two came forward. <laughs> Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Well, he never said that. He said, I'm able to, he said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and I'll raise it up again in three days. He never said that he was going to destroy Herod's temple, but that's the testimony. And then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remains silent. Jesus has an opportunity to speak here, and he doesn't. He remains silent. And the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Now that was a what's known as a Levit- Levitical vow. He was actually... He was actually uh, calling this vow down on him by the living God. He's calling him to this oath. Tell us if you are the Christ. He says, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ. Are you the Messiah? That's what he's asking him, the Son of God. Verse 64. Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. (laughs) You don't suppose these guys were a little upset at that, do you? Then the high priest tore his clothes. Now, by the way, if you look into that in Leviticus, um, Leviticus chapter 10, verses 6, verse 6 and, and chapter 21, verse 10, that was not allowed. The high priest was not allowed to tear his clothes. Okay, These guys were upset. He tore his clothes and he said, He has spoken blasphemy. Now understand that blasphemy is contempt for God, expressed in word or deed. Uh, it can be cursing, denying, spurning him, or claiming to be his equal, which is what they're going to accuse Jesus of, claiming to be his equal. That's blasphemy. Yes, Mark? Uh, Leviticus chapter 10 verse 6 and verse 21 chapter 21 verse 10 uh, that speaks of the the high priest not tearing his garments okay but it says he's spoken blasphemy why do we need any more witnesses now notice he, he never even addressed that they finally got two witnesses to agree on something and that was that he said he was going to destroy the temple but he doesn't even ask him that question did you say that he didn't even ask him he goes to this deal about, are you the Messiah? And Jesus tells him yes, and he calls it blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. And then they spit in his face, and they struck him with their fists. And, and, and actually, you know, when you look into Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52, it says that after he was beaten, he was unrecognizable as a man. He was beaten beyond recognition as a man. The Bible says they blindfolded him. It says in, uh, in Mark's Gospel, they blindfolded him. And it's one thing to have somebody punch you. You see a punch coming, you can kind of go with it a little bit and absorb it a little bit, but when you're blindfolded, you can't see it coming. And you take the full force of the blow. And those of you that have come back from seeing the movie The Passion, as hard as that was to watch, and as intense as that torture was that they portrayed on the big screen, I don't think that was half of what Jesus took for us. I really don't. Because they said he was unrecognizable. It says they plucked his beard out. They tore his beard out of his face. My guess is his head was swollen and he was unrecognizable. They spit on him. They struck him. They hit him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? So there's an indication that he was blindfolded and they were mocking him. All the things that he said were going to happen. Now, Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. 
You were also with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth, and he denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. So he's more determined now than ever. And then verse 73, After a, a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. This third guy, when you get into John's Gospel, in John chapter 18, John says that this guy was related to Malchus. The guy that he cut his ear off, Peter cut his ear off, back in the garden. This guy was related. The guy who's accusing him now and say, hey, wait a minute. You know, aren't you the guy that whacked my cousin's ear off or whatever, you know? No, it, it says that, it says, I can tell by your accent, your accent gives you away. It's funny, I, I, sometimes I'm, uh, even out of the country, I've had people come up to me. One guy came up to me and he said, um, you're from Green Bay. And uh, I think it was in Frankfurt, I was at the airport. You're from Green Bay. And I said, I was born about 35 miles south of Green Bay, Wisconsin, in the United States. How do you know that? He said, because I have a friend and he talks just like you. He's from Green Bay. You understand, it's like they, they knew. He's, he's a Galilean. We can tell by the way he talks. Your accent gives you away. And then he began, began to call down curses on himself. Literally, anathema. Might I be eternally cursed if I know this guy? He calls curses down on himself. And he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And then Peter remembered the word. Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Wow. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. And they bound him and they led away, led him away. They handed him over to Pilate, the governor. I want you to know that Jesus was bound, but he was bound by love. They didn't need to tie him. They didn't need to put chains around him and tie him. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 silver coins to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. Now this is interesting because remember... When he left the upper room, when he left the upper room, the Bible tells us that Satan entered into him. Jesus said, what you're going to do, do quickly. And he left and says, and Satan entered into him, and it, and it was dark. I think it was dark from then on for, for, for Judas. But one of the things Chuck Missler pointed out in the study last night was that even demon-possessed, he said, even the devil testifies to the fact that Jesus was innocent. Listen to it again. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. <laughs> Even a demon-possessed demon man saying Jesus is innocent. What is that to us, they replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away and he hanged himself. Judas didn't think that there would be any forgiveness. He went and he hanged himself. Well, we do happen to know people in the scriptures who were demon-possessed, who were forgiven, and follow Jesus with the rest of their lives. We know that. It wasn't out of the question for Judas. Jot this down. Zechariah 11, verse 12, because not only does Zechariah prophesy that Jesus is going to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, but he also prophesies that it's going to be thrown down into the house of the Lord and received by a potter. <laughs> you know, that money went to buy a potter's field. Because they said, we can't, we can't put this money in the temple coffers because it's blood money. We can't accept it as an offering. But here's what we can do. We can buy this potter's field and use it for burying you know, strangers and visitors. And... Well, the chief priests picked up the coins and they said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. So they decided to use the money to buy a potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And that's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. 
And then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Also, uh, Zechariah 11. Um, they took 30, piece, 30 silver coins, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Amazing prophecy, because you look at that and you go, well, how can it be thrown down in the house of the Lord and be given to a potter? And how can, you know, it's an incredible portion of Scripture. But it was exactly like they said. Jesus was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Wow. And he gave his life for you and I. He gave his life for you and I. Jesus told them all these things were going to happen, but something something clouds our vision when we're in the middle of it. Think about this. Jesus has told us all the things that are going to happen right up into the rapture of the church and to the second coming of Christ. He's laid it all out for us. We know it's going to happen. And don't we get tired? Don't we get bored of all this? Don't we get, up, you know, what, what, Lord, what's going on? Is this, really, is this really going to happen? I mean, Peter said there's going to be scoffers in the last day, scoffing and saying, yeah, yeah, where is this coming? We're living in it. And I can't imagine. There isn't anything else that has to happen before the Lord just calls the church home. There isn't anything else that has to happen. It's amazing. There are some signs for the second coming, but there's no signs that need to take place for the rapture of the church. They're all here. In fact, when you look at the, the, uh, the different countries that come together in the, in, in the Magog invasion, we're coming up on that in our Sunday morning study in Ezekiel chapter 38. When you look at the countries that come together and invade Israel from the north, they're all together. They're all allies. <laughs> they're all on the same page. So in one sense, we go, Lord, show us, teach us, draw us, equip us, fill us so that we can be good ambassadors. You know what? The, the embassy is still open. We're still here. Before the Lord pours his wrath out full strength on the earth, he's going to take his ambassadors out of here. But in the meantime, I want to be about his business. I want to occupy till he comes. I want to be available. I want my shingle out there. I want, I want people to know that I trust in the Savior. And so I'll, let's pray, just in closing tonight. Let's pray and ask the Lord to, to just um, keep us faithful, keep us awake. Father, we, we do ask. Lord, we don't want to fall asleep in this time. We want to be alert. We want to be sober-minded. We want to keep our eyes on you. We want to listen to your voice. We want to follow you. And most of all, Lord, we want to be available for those who don't know you, those that don't have a relationship with you. So, Lord, as we leave this place, I pray that our hearts would just throb and beat in, in sync with yours, Lord, for the lost. And that we might just, like, like we saw in, in our Ezekiel study, chapter 33, Lord, that we would be the watchmen that sound the alarm and let people know. And, Lord, thank you for this Bible study. Thank you for showing the love that you have for us. Every time you want to show us the love you have, you point us to your son, Jesus. And I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit to help us understand it. Now, Lord, teach us to love like you love. That's our hope. That's our desire, Lord, is just to lay it all down. Let go of this and, and follow you with everything we are and everything we're not. And we ask this in the precious name of that one who rather die than live without us. In the precious name of your son, Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen.